0: Hi, I'm Samir Akaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today I'm pleased to bring you my interview with Sergio Monsalve, founding partner of Roble Ventures, a seed stage firm based in Silicon Valley, and focuses on the theme of human enablement, which we'll talk about on the show. Prior to starting Roble, he spent nearly 14 years in one of the longest standing VC firms in Norwest Venture Partners, where he invested in unicorns such as Udemy and Adaptive Insights. Sergey has also held various roles in high-growth technology companies like eBay and Portal Software, and also teaches at his alma mater, Stanford, on education and entrepreneurship. In our wide-ranging conversation, we chatted about a number of things, including equity and diversity in the VC world, adapting to being a small solo GP after so much time at a large firm, and how he thinks about investing in white-hot markets. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Anduin. Anduin's platform makes fund management simple, with streamlined fund operations, digitized fund subscriptions, and real-time status updates. As many investors know, traditional paper-based subscription agreements are costly, tedious, and error-prone, with up to 80% of submitted documents being incorrect or considered in poor order. This causes fund managers to be faced with a lack of visibility and an endless back-and-forth with investors, causing a poor onboarding experience for both the LP and the fund manager. This is where Anduin steps in as their investor onboarding workflow brings clarity and efficiency to fund subscriptions, which drastically reduce error rates and makes for happier LPs. For fund managers, the platform allows them to free up time so they can focus on what they do best, which is investing. For more information on Anduin or to arrange a demo, visit fundsub.io forward slash ventureunlocked. That's fundsub.io forward slash ventureunlocked. Hey, Sergio, it's so great to see you. And thanks again for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Samir. I'm uh, really looking forward to to our chat today.
0: So I always like to start off with the beginnings of why somebody got into venture. And you started in venture nearly 15 years ago at Norwest at the time. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to get into venture and maybe some of the unique challenges you faced in, in breaking into the industry. Yeah,
1: sure. You know, this story starts I think uh, like most stories they start sort of from from your beginnings. I uh, I think my I, I was born and raised in Mexico City and came here when I was 13 to San Diego uh from a family that, you know, first gen kid, um family that was both entrepreneurial but also uh cared a lot about education. I I cared a lot about STEM and and so I landed in Stanford and I just fell in love with Silicon Valley. Uh but I also love to invest um I went to Morgan Stanley, then I went to business school, and I've, then I became an operator and an entrepreneur myself. So I got to see the venture side from the entrepreneur's eyes, which I, I think is very helpful as you break into venture to have the empathy towards the, the entrepreneur. And so um, a few years later, I ended up as an EIR in, in a, a venture fund that uh, had funded me before uh, myself and uh, that's where i think norwest reached out to me and said that they were looking to expand the team and that, so i landed in uh, as a as a partner as a principal first uh in uh, norwest in 2007 obviously as a inventor, i think it's an apprenticeship business and it's always uh, very challenging especially at the time when i was starting in venture uh, you can probably recall that you know we had a, a one year of a great economy and all of a sudden we had this A financial crisis for two years, two three years, Uh, so it was a very tumultuous time to learn about venture because it was an unusual time. Um, So that's some of the challenges and key learnings there came uh, through the apprenticeship during that time.
0: I I also think sometimes when you start your career at a time where things are up, and then when they when they crash, it's you learn so much. I actually did the same thing. So I started my career in Venture ninety nine. Saw this. Massive up and up for so many years, and then obviously the crash in 2000. But you spent a lot of lot of time at Norwest, which, for those that don't know, has been around for I think almost 50 years, has built an incredible brand, had at a single LP I think for the entire life, and invested early stage and late stage. And you invested in a lot of great entrepreneurs and companies during that time. Why did you decide to leave? norwest and actually hang your own shingle with robley
1: well I think that I think the opportunity uh, in venture venture has changed a lot uh, since I started in 7 and uh, and I, I've i've learned a lot like you said it's been an incredible experience uh, initially it's not always easy and if it wasn't easy for me I had to kind of uh, battle uh, learning the business and and eventually became very thematically focused uh, I remember, in one of my earlier investments, were was in uh, in an education technology company when I believed that education was going to become uh, tech enabled and and it's gonna was going to be disrupted and and improved by technology, uh, but that investment didn't work out. Uh, and so one of the things that I learned is that you just gotta you gotta believe in your thesis and you gotta continue to kind of invest. So as I was as I was later in my career. Uh, I started and uh, continued to be much more thematic and focused a lot more on what I now call human enablement technologies and so, as I start uh Roble, I really thought that there was a few things that i I wanted to do one is is I really want to be thematically focused. I think the world of venture is uh has become a specialist game, not a generalist game. I also think I want to be go back to investing early and in smaller checks to be able to uh, influence and help entrepreneurs from the ground up, kind of go back to my entrepreneurial roots, uh, really help them with product market fit, with go-to-market, and also shape the way the boards are are built. I think that's very important. I do think that being one of only a handful of Latinos that have been able to break into venture and have some, uh, some unicorns in their portfolio, I'm very fortunate to be in that position, but I also need to pay it forward. Uh, when you think about California, for example, being 39% Latino and 50 plus percent women. And for us, uh, those at least those two groups plus black population too, not participating in the entrepreneurial process and the venture process, it's just atrocious that we, we haven't been able to break in. So I, I want to make a difference by building a firm that really thinks about that from the beginning and at the earlier
0: stages. To me, it makes a ton of sense. And it's it's a story that I hear quite often, you know, for people starting their own. They have a passion towards something, they have a unique lens, but there is an opportunity cost with everything, right? At Norwest, one of the benefits is that you have a partnership, you have a lot of resources, and you can focus on investing and sourcing and, and working with entrepreneurs. And now starting your own firm, you have to do pretty much everything, whether it's raising capital looking at building the ethos of the firm, and you're moving away from a partnership-driven decision process to being a solo GP. Tell us a little bit about how that adjustment's been.
1: Yeah, you know, as you said, uh, uh, it's, it's both exciting and daunting. Uh, I mean, I, as, I was, uh, as I'm starting my fund, um, I need to build relationships with my, uh, my LPs. I need to sort of build the website, have the back, uh, the back office ready, there's a lot of things that you do as an entrepreneur and, you know, and I, I'm, I'm really digging deep on the things that I used, I did when I was actually an operator in a tech company and a founder myself. And that's exciting to me. It's, it's, it's I'm a, uh, I'm a jack of all trades, but I also have to, you know, have to do the business of venture, which is to really help entrepreneurs uh, have a great deal flow, have a lot of good relationships and build great uh, momentum in the theme that you pursue. Uh, what really drives me, though, is just uh, is bigger than myself. It's just a necessity for me to really uh, invest in this theme uh, that I call human enablement tech, because, uh, I mean, ultimately, I've done well. I mean, I, I've been fortunate to have had um, uh, two unicorns uh, in, in, in my history in Northwest and have been able to uh, deliver some great results. Uh, I also have one on my own called Kahoot that I invested in personally. And also, all those three happen to be in the theme. Uh, I do think the theme is going to be very transformational for all people, not just for the people that are fortunate to be living in Silicon Valley and being tech workers here. Uh, I I do think the theme has legs to provide for everybody and have an equity and diverse component to it. So that drives me, uh, despite the fact that I have to do a lot of different uh, things that that I didn't used to do, you know, I have to do my own deal diligence and deal memo, and I have to put together my own syndicates and my own deal team. But it's all fun uh, when you actually have a broader picture and a mission driven approach. That's the, vo- the very most important thing. When you have a mission, it's, it's, is much more, it's much more powerful and easier to kind of have a team to support you.
0: Let's go to a couple of comments that you made. One is venture has changed, which I would agree. And I, would also uh, agree with the sentiment that we have moved away from general monolith type of models to very sector focused, region focused. So we have much more specialty fund managers. You mentioned human enablement as the investment theme that your fund invests in and that you're passionate about. What does that actually mean?
1: Human enablement to me is just, it's come over the, the last decade or so where I, I've, been, I've been investing. In technologies that ultimately have helped a lot of a lot of people get socioeconomically ahead, and so that's how I defined it currently, which is uh, it, it really breaks down into three things, right? It's one is how can we create technology that enables for better work environments, and also meritocracies, right? Like if you if you invest in things that improve communication, improve productivity, but also give give transparency in the workplace. A great example of that is one of my companies that we ended up selling to Workday called Adaptive Insights, they're able to provide transparency and financial planning so all people uh, in the company can actually have access to that information and they can contribute. So as a byproduct of that, you create a meritocracy. The second thing would be a a company, for example, that I invested in early uh, and was on the board for seven years called Udemy. That company provides education for everybody in the world not only that, but on the supply side, the instructors at Udemy are making over a million dollars, some of them, uh, by instructing on Udemy. Imagine that we now created a platform where teachers are heroes at Udemy. And uh, unfortunately, in, in the real world, teachers don't get treated as heroes as much as they should. And then the last piece is is something that I learned when I was an operator and, and uh, actually uh, in inside uh, eBay as i consider them to be the pioneers in a two-sided marketplace way back when in that world what you do is is you actually are creating new types of jobs for people so if you think if you think of the supply side of any marketplace they unlock new new opportunities of new ways to work some people call it the gig economy sure but there's also a lot of other types of work that have been created uh, for all kinds of people that cannot necessarily work on a nine to five uh, office job. And so when you think you put it all together, you better work environments, more productivity, better skills, so that you could kind of get updated. And then the last piece is more jobs. So ultimately, in my vision of the world, human enablement means that you give a lot more opportunity to a lot more people, not just the rich ones or the white ones or the male ones. It's just everybody that gets ahead. Uh, and, and you obviously, you you do it with a diverse and equitable, uh, and inclusive mindset, right? And we've
0: talked a lot about this certainly during the pandemic, where it feels like there have been so many technological trends that have accelerated in a very short amount of time, including things like workplace productivity, remote learning. As you look at where we are right now, moving out of the pandemic, what do you think are the trends that, from a human enablement standpoint? Have some real permanence versus things that could be just transient during the pandemic itself, when we're all locked inside our own homes.
1: Yeah, you know, one of the things that I I do uh, want to do at uh, at Roble Ventures is be able to not only be inclusive inside the U.S., but enable, uh, given that I'm from Mexico and I have a lot of ties to Latinos, Latinas in the U.S., but also in Latin America. I, I one of the things that I've learned from the pandemic is that creativity can come from anywhere. For example, in the, in the Roble Ventures portfolio, I invested in a company called, a company called Ubits. Uh, started in Colombia and now they've moved to New Mexico and it's an educational technology company that's doing extremely well. Another one that I co-invested with, with Al Ventures called Ulesson, they're essentially creating a, a way for uh, K through 12 uh, students to learn in Africa. And th- those entrepreneurs, are just as capable if not more capable than some of the best entrepreneurs that i see here locally so when i when I when i think of how education entrepreneurial education has changed and the pandemic has accelerated that change it means ultimately that uh creativity can come from anywhere so i do think that there's going to be a lot in the next 10 years i bet you we're going to see a much different type of entrepreneur that we saw in the last 10 years and so to me, new population of entrepreneurs will be unleashed. So give you an example. If you think if California alone and obviously uh, other places where I invest like Texas and New York and in and Seattle and in and, and, uh, Massachusetts, um, all those places uh, have a high index. And this is just native to me, uh, high index uh, of Latinos and Latinas. Imagine. And right now at Roble Ventures, I don't necessarily focus on Latin America. You know, I could invest there, and I have, uh, but I mainly focus on the U.S. But a lot of my meetings, a third of my meetings happen in Spanish. Uh, So I'm unleashing a lot of people that, they they speak English, and we eventually maybe turn into the conversation in English. But just the mere fact that I have the empathy and ability to speak to them in a language they like and love uh, unleashes a whole new empathy for a new type of immigrant Or entrepreneur. And that in my world will enable a whole new class of entrepreneurs to be unleashed. And and that's pretty exciting. And that's actually accelerated by the pandemic for sure.
0: Since you touched a little bit on your background in immigrating from Mexico, we have started to see far more development in, in terms of people of color, people of different ethnicities, gender, being venture capitalists particularly at this side of the market, right? The the seed stage market. There are very few Latinos that are currently venture capitalists. I think the, uh, the stat is less than 1%. You mentioned being able to speak to certain type of entrepreneurs in their native language. But what are some of the other things that as LPs are listening to this or founders that people that have such different backgrounds can bring to the table that not only are interesting in terms of bringing more diversity but actually can result in great financial outcomes for people that invest in these fund managers
1: one of the things that I think I've seen uh, personally uh, over time is is diversity does is good for business full stop um, when you when you have a non-diverse group of people I, I've seen many times that groupthink emerges and so people start finishing each other's sentences and that to me is just this initiation of the sign where where just creativity is not going to come out in in its full force. So one of the things that I, I want to do, for example, I was signatory to uh, to governor the governor California's mandate law that was AB nine seven nine, which basically mandated that public uh, public companies have a diverse board, right? So now I looked at that and said, great. Now public companies will have that. But then I thought about it as I build ro- Robles, How do you create a diverse board from the beginning, because in many cases, I would come in later in my prior work, I would come in on the B or the C, and the board was already formed by the near venture investors that were already in the board. And so one of the things that I do think is important to do is for me to come in early and hence the great reason to build Roble is come in early and really think about deliberately how you syndicate a board so that it truly is diverse from the beginning and the only way to do it is to syndicate it to your A investor and your B investor and your C investor that are really uh, going to complement the board from a true diversity perspective and what what that's going to result in is that the conversations are going to be totally different on the board and they're going to be totally different in a partnership and and to me that's it that is incredibly important because all of a sudden if you are representing your customers in a company let's say Uh, your customers will represent the population, especially in a consumer company. If your population is 50 plus percent women and 39 percent Latino and 10 percent black, whatever that is, and you have nobody on the board that's representing those constituencies, then you're not going to be a well-operated board in a well-operated company. To me, I start from the beginning and syndicate, create that environment so that you actually end up where the governor of California wants to stand up in the public boards, but that's too late if you're already d- mandated you to to the publics. I think you've mandated it to the, to the beginning, but do it in a way that's organic and that is just done through venture capital investing. So that's why I, as one of only a handful of Latinos, I want to I accelerate that and I want to enable black women, Latinos, Latinas to be able to participate in boards so that we are not just 1%. Uh, you know, we're much more, right? And and that creates, that's going to be b- better for everybody.
0: I agree completely. And it is, I mean, if you look at the statistics, people that are underrepresented managers tend to invest in underrepresented founders and entrepreneurs much more than those that are not. Going to your investing style, you have this different background. You've worked at a big firm, but you also have these networks and maybe don't fall victim to some of the biases that a traditional manager that hasn't had the same upbringing or the, the way you grew up. But how do you think about your own biases? And as a solo GP, that's a tough, right? You don't have partners around you that can challenge your own thinking, maybe look at some of the implicit or unconscious biases that you have. How do you think about continuously learning and making sure that your thought process is as diverse as possible as you're making decisions in, in terms of investing.
1: You know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it and I can't, I'll tell you, it's an it's a learning process. Um, and like anything else, you gotta approach it with a growth a growth mindset because you yourself will have, um, I myself will have blind spots and will also not only blind spots, but what I've learned over time is I could have a scar tissue. Uh, so for example, in my inv- first investment, or the first ed tech investment that i ever did it didn't work out i could have completely backed away from that sector because it was scary and i had scar tissue from it but instead i doubled down because i believed I had conviction and i i surrounded myself with the right uh right folks that would give me uh, a diverse point of view as i fast forward to roble right now the things that i'm thinking about are okay how would i uh be able to complement my diligence instead of hardest thing to do in a solo GP is to argue with a mirror because it, the mirror does not argue back. And so that's the worst thing. The one thing that I do like uh, about um, how we I've been taught uh, how to diligence and venture, what I really like is creating these tiger teams that are very diverse from the beginning and have a perspective of debate. And so that's what I'm replicating, but that doesn't have to be inside the firm necessarily. So in, in for example, in the last deal that I did for Roble, uh, we, I pulled together two or three of the experts that had diverse perspective in the domain that we were, uh, this company that we were looking at. And we uh, co diligence together. We shared the deal memo together and we were able to get to an answer very quickly. That's the beauty about thematic is that you have a prepared mind and you have all your contacts. You no longer have to be looking at a shoe deal one day, a semiconductor deal the next, a food deal. I'm only looking at human enablement technology. So uh, I'll give you another example. I I have eight companies in Roble right now. Another one that I I closed on um, earlier this year uh, was a company that needed an introduction to this ex-CEO of Kahoot, which is, like I said, it's a company in Norway. And they, it's not necessarily as connected here. Now they are. but And so to me, being able to just pick up the phone and make that introduction, because it's very much in my domain. I use it for my class. I teach a class at Stanford on education, technology, and entrepreneurship. I use it myself. My kids use it. And I, I, was, I'm a, I was an investor. So I was able to pick up the phone and make that introduction. That is a source of value for my entrepreneurs. And that's why I think thematic Uh, Focused specialists will win over over generalists, Uh, and I think that's where the world uh, the world of venture is going.
0: I would um, come back to you know something that you just mentioned there because I I think that a lot of solo GPS or when people think about solo GPS, they think they're on an island, but oftentimes there are a network of experts around you that can help you, whether it's related to the sourcing or diligencing or even helping a company. And it sounds like you have that. There are things though do come down to your own decision making, and that is a go or no go on a particular investment. In today's world, things are crazier than I've ever seen. And I've been through some crazy times. We've seen the early days of the pandemic where it felt like the market was going to to fall apart. People were talking about flat and down rounds. And now sitting here a year later, everything is white hot. Valuations for seed stage companies are often up to 20 to 30 million. And you're looking at some of these sectors, like whether it's ed tech or workplace productivity, remote uh, work, that I would characterize as white hot sectors right now and very competitive, high valuations. What is your own mental methodology of how do you invest in a time where everything is so competitive and valuations are high? How do you maintain some discipline and what are your parameters that you think about when building out the portfolio?
1: It's so interesting because a, a lot of emerging uh, managers and a lot of VCs, frankly, haven't gone through what you and I have had to go through in ninety nine, two uh, 99, 2000, 2001, then fast forward to 2007, 2008, 2009. I mean, those were crazy times in different ways, jagged edges in terms of ups and downs. You have to be very cognizant of the fact that things may be different now. Um, uh, you know, or, uh, in some ways, and some some ways is going to play out the same way. So the number one thing that I take away from my my uh, last 12 years or so of, of being an investor is, is that you have to be remain very disciplined. And really think of, think of what we do as as really um, trading risk for return. And so you cannot veer away from from, you've got to be very conscious of what risks you're taking and assessing risks. So the way you diligence and the way you underwrite a deal has to be really well thought out. For example, uh, if I am investing in Latin America, you know, I a lot of people don't really realize that there has to be a developing country discount and risk applied to the deal for a variety of reasons. Not because it's a worse or better uh, country, it's just because there's a uh, foreign exchange issues. There's there's, uh, um, there's externalities that you don't know about. So those things you got to bake in and that has to be reflected in how you enter the deal, how you value the deal. And so I think discipline ultimately has to be there. I think the the really the training in a in a, a large established firm is about discipline because they've seen a lot of different uh, ups and downs. I'm trying to be disciplined. It is, it is a white hot uh, area. I am coming very early into seed and post seed that does inoculate a little bit, uh, because you're not really playing for a two, three year outcome. This is really a long-term patient game. And so if you are generally in the right neighborhood and you are betting on the right founder and and founding team with the right mindset, then, and it's a large TAM, I think you will get there. It may require a couple pivots. It may require a down round, Uh, unfortunately sometimes it has to be done done that way. And in many cases, the best outcomes that I've had have been situations where there has to be some pivoting, has to be some pain along the way. But ultimately, I I think you're going to be well off if you're actually targeting the right area and your discipline, right? And and your diligence and your prepared mind, which which is why I think thematically uh, focused investing is very important in today's society, especially.
0: I think it's really tough in, in, in some ways. And, and I totally agree with everything you said in terms of exercising the same level of diligence, you know, thinking about what the ultimate outcome could be, particularly with when you have high conviction in the founder or the, the market opportunity, understanding when to go out of your tight parameters of things like ownership and valuation. But today deals move very, very quickly, right? And you're seeing the round sizes grow and the competition grow. What's your own internal compass of when you decide to maybe stretch outside your normal boundaries of ownership and valuation? Do you ascribe to, hey, we're just price takers and you know, for the right deals, we'll just do it? Or does there have to be certain things that are in place Related to the opportunity for you to go outside of your boundaries
1: I think the answer the short answer is you have to create so you have to have some sort of level of expertise and level of ability to shape your future or will yourself into success, meaning that your network and your knowledge about your uh, sector has to be superb in order for you to kind of be able to take that risk and be more comfortable taking that risk so it's almost like uh, if you have info asymmetry because of your expertise you will be willing to stretch a little bit more. I'll give you a good example. I mean, it's 2013, a lot of people were saying, you know, education has been a a really tough place to make a living for venture capital investors. And so it was the opposite of today, right, 2013. So I remember as I was looking at uh, Udemy for for diligence, one of the things that uh, was coming up is that it wasn't necessarily clear that uh, the, the the marketplace model was going to really work, and a lot of the instructors were not necessarily that uh, complacent, you know. And so, I I actually drew um, uh, lessons from my eBay days, where in uh, my eBay days early on, we didn't have uh, uh, suppliers, sellers, top sellers that were as happy either. But bec- but if you kind of Really think of your customers as two-sided customers, both the supply and the demand side are customers. In many cases, marketplace owners, marketplace uh, developers only think of the demand side as the customer. But if you're customer-centric, you will build a great company. And so my bet on Udemy was I, I would consider that I stretched back then, uh, but you know it, it's going to turn out to be probably 40x uh, the, the return from that initial investment. And so I'm very happy that I stretched, but at the time it seemed very uncomfortable. Uh, And so I think it's a combination of having been comfortable with the marketplace model and the fact that you could actually fix the supply side as, uh, you know, that's something you could execute towards. And I felt a little bit more comfortable because of my eBay background, but also I I had a lot of conviction about education, despite the fact that it, it hadn't worked for me prior to that. I felt like it needed to be there, like there needed to be a solution for education. And so I I had that conviction in the long term, and it turned out to be uh, the right bet now eight years later.
0: You bring up something that I, I think of a lot, which is, you know, when you do have conviction, part of being a great VC is understanding when you make those calculated bets and bet on something, regardless of what the valuation is and the ownership, because you believe in the opportunity of that particular company. But, you know, I was talking to an LP recently, and they were saying, today just feels like there's a risk on top of risk, meaning the valuations are high, which means the ownership is lower. The problem there is not necessarily like the ownership because the outcomes could be bigger. But when the valuations go up, more money goes into these companies, more more money goes into these companies before they really hit pre-product market fit or product market fit, rather. You just have these companies spend a ton of capital, are forced to spend and often go down a path of being overcapitalized early, which actually can come at a huge detriment to the company. We've seen that before, right? How do you think about that in today's market where like an average seed round might be 3 to $5 million and at the pre-seed level, there's nothing there? I mean, do you participate in those things or do you say, hey, we want to capitalize founders in the appropriate way, regardless of what the market is doing?
1: Number one, you don't want to chase for uh, to, to just uh, win any deal, right? There's, there's absolutely, a, 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 you have to be very conscious of the risk you're taking versus the return. So underwriting to the proper risk. Uh, the only thing you can do is be more prepared so that you understand and unlock all the risks. So the number one thing for me is really uh, risk mitigation through a really good understanding of the companies and, and good understanding on how I can help the companies in many different ways, so that that actually shifts the, the curve. But regardless of that, I mean, when you have things that are uh, going public and becoming, forget about the valuation, talk about the revenue. You know, you one of the things I talk in my class at Stanford, um, which I just finished, is the fact that we underestimated, uh, grossly underestimated the outcome of big tech. Right? I couldn't have, I couldn't be sitting here with you today ten years ago and said, you know what? Samir, we're going to have $3 trillion companies and one $2 trillion company in the next 10 years. So that is fueling a lot of excitement for the scale of technology. That also actually scares me in a different way, is that we're going to leave a lot of people behind. So going back to why I think Silicon Valley has to have humanity injected into them is that we have to be deliberate about what types of technologies are gonna have the, the positive side effect of inclusivity. So that's a different topic. But in, in your original question, I do think that uh, the world in certain areas uh, has gotten pretty crazy. Uh, now at the, on the other end, you're seeing n- n- bigger and bigger and bigger outcomes. I mean, like I said, Udemy could be one of our biggest outcomes. Uh, and uh, and we didn't think necessarily when I underwrote the deal 10, 10 years ago, or seven seven years ago, I was nowhere near thinking that the outcome would be this big. So I hear you. I hear you on the exuberance. Um, And the only thing I can tell you is that uh, I can hopefully be more prepared to avoid the treacherous terrain that comes from being the the hottest sector in the hottest (laughs) subsector because technology is one thing. Silicon Valley is dreamland for people. And on top of that, education tech and, and distance learning and distance work is now become very hot. But you know, when I started seven, eight years ago investing in the theme, it was the opposite, it's contrarian. I myself would rather pick areas that are contrarian. And I do have those in my the formation and the fun construction of Roble. So I'm I'm you know me. I mean I, I'm not necessarily one that kind of goes to the to the hottest area on the on the planet. I try to be very focused on and actually somewhat under the radar in certain, certain uh, investments that I've made over time. And that's where I like to be. I like to be contrarian and be proven right. That's, that's the best place to be. I think in edtech is not where we are today, but in certain areas where I'm investing, it is.
0: I agree with that. And we always talk about the best place to invest is when you're contrarian and you're right. You always take the risk then of being contrarian, and being wrong, which is a lonely place to be. And And that forces a lot of folks to go down the path of betting with the rest of the crowd and being non-contrarian and and focus on consensus bets. And sometimes the thing that you have to balance, and unfortunately I see this too often, is that people do bet on white-hot companies and sectors, primarily because those are the ones that can give them the, the best early markups, which allow them to raise the next fund. How do you think about that? For your own model because you are investing in areas that are wide hot. But at the same time, from what I've heard in our conversations, you will look at opportunities that could be off the beaten path um, with entrepreneurs that aren't as well known in areas that historically haven't had too much venture money going toward it. What is the thing that you look to accomplish in the early days?
1: The one thing that, I've, um, that I think it's important is to um, make sure that you back uh, back great people venture investors as they get started i always thought that i was really good at picking business models and tams and all these uh, all this other stuff in reality what i really learned over time is that you're really you're really betting on people and so to me really the tuning and pruning of my network by now having uh the luxury of being thematic is is beautiful because i now get to know the best minds and the best people in the sector that I cover. So I, I I don't have to boil the ocean on knowing every single uh, Steve Jobs and Elon Musk out there. It's just in the sector. Now, I have to be right about the sector. Uh, otherwise, I'm missing out on uh, other opportunities. But I believe that I am, the macros are there to continue to build. Their penetration is very low in the three areas that I describe in human enablement. You know, it's a humongous, you're talking about trillions of dollars in market available. And uh, and so I do believe that there's going to be, if you think of it this way, let's talk uh, in 20, 2031 or yeah, 10 years from now, let's say that you and I are talking, what are we going to be talking about? Hopefully that uh, there was one or two billion dollar companies that was just, you know, literally right now is being created. And hopefully I got a chance to see it because. They wanted somebody that was focused in their space and could help them at this stage. So if I can tell you that, then I'm, I've been successful. If it happens to be that it is within the theme, I diversified the board. I was able to bring a full mantra around uh, the movement that I'm trying to create, which is around diversity and inclusion with a, a, a heart, venture with a heart, with human enablement at the centerpiece. If I'm able to do that, then all of a sudden I made my LPs happy, myself happy, and I hopefully helped humanity get to a better place, uh, where you actually uh, bridge the gap and, and get people to kind of have better jobs, be more, ha- be happier and have better skills to do their jobs. To me, that's like a, a full win. Forget it. Like a home run plus, you know, I know, I know a lot of venture people want to hit a home run. My version of a home run has to be a 360 view of really, am I doing good and am I doing well? And right? so that that would be, to me, incredibly
0: rewarding. It's extremely refreshing to hear. And I do think you can actually build you know, a great firm uh, with great outcomes for your, for your LPs that way. And I also do think that if we're talking in 2031, outside of the fact that you and I will probably have far more gray hairs, that we will look back as a retrospective and say, technology was still in the early innings when we talked in 2021. And you look at all these different sectors and areas that are just now adapting and adopting technology that we never would have seen the level of growth. And I, and I think it's, hard, it's becoming harder and harder to debate the relative size and scale technology companies can become. And whether you wanna debate the valuations, which I think is a fair point, it is very hard for me to envision a world where technology isn't the biggest macro driver of, growth, jobs, and real uh, progression in society. And so I'm excited to see it. I'm very bullish. I wanted to end with our key check section, which is really three questions. After 15 years being a venture capitalist, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've ever learned?
1: I think of a quote that uh, when I was working at eBay that our CEO at the time, Meg Whitman, uh, said to me, and it got me really thinking that it's actually really true and it has shaped the way I think about venture. She said, um, you want to make sure that you don't end up with too much college and too little kindergarten. And that, to me, is stuck with me because it actually, it's actually very interesting because my whole human enablement theme is about EQ as much as IQ, if not more. And I think you have to be deliver of it. Uh, you have to put the humanity into the investments that you make. And I think that will create a big following because people do want to do good and and I've seen it firsthand. Uh, you know, being on the board of Udemy, I, I see how much employees want to come to work because they're in a mission-driven company. I, I do think that uh, the kindergarten portion is that you get along with people, you help people. And the college part, obviously, she refers to the IQ part and the preparation, technical preparation. I think you have to have both. So I, I really love that quote.
0: Uh, I love the uh, the quote and the analogy, and I do think um, EQ is one of the most underrated characteristics. That an investor can have. We talked about a little bit about this, and, and you mentioned this, but within venture, not tech, but within the venture universe, we both have seen so much change and the growth and evolution of the venture. What do you think is going to be the dominant trend over the next decade within venture?
1: We're going to be very surprised again if we we're talking in twenty thirty one who the next layer of entrepreneurs are, right? If you if we started with like immigrants from Russia or or Israel or some Place, uh, you know, like Sergey Brin, Larry Page, obviously, and you know Yahoo Taiwan. I I mean, I think the next next set of entrepreneurs are going to look totally different. You know, there's going to be a lot more participation from the bigger parts of our population, like Latino, Latina women, uh, Black, and so I'm really excited to see it. I'm also going to see you're going to see the diversification away from from just a, a dominance in Silicon Valley because of what we've learned during the pandemic. You can build a company anywhere and you actually can build a company without a, without headquarters necessarily. So we're going to start seeing places that have incredible young populations. Um, that's why I'm sort of thinking Latin America has a lot of potential, great universities, great technical people. Obviously, I'm biased there, but I'm also looking Europe and in Asia as well as Africa. I'm not necessarily hunting everywhere but because i get to be thematic i get to see what the leading companies are in each of the regions and you learn from them i mean what we're learning from Bajju and in india is incredible and we can bring that a little bit to that to other regions so i think i get to explore the best of all worlds in in everywhere even if i don't get to be in those parts of the world so i think we're going to see a lot of diversification across those two areas
0: and to achieve that, I do think that we're going to need more diversity in fund managers and the people that actually fund these entrepreneurs, which I'm excited to see. Last question, you've worked with so many different investors, sat on boards. Is there an investor out there that you that particularly inspires you? And if so, like who is that and what about them?
1: It's funny because it's one that you will not see in Midas list or in any notoriety, uh, you know, sort of uh, big publication. And he's not even from the U.S. He's he's one of my ex-partners at, at uh, Northwest, who I got to work with for you know over a decade. Um, he I really admire him because he he was underestimated, and he's done an incredible job at at building. It's, he's in India. His name is Mohan Kumar. He's a founding partner at Avatar. Now he started his own fund. He's done an amazing job. Uh, he was really one of the early folks that really believed in uh, in turning indian uh creativity into uh not only into service uh, they were they had a service economy that was very strong in tech but he really believed that india could could build some great products and he's proven right uh he's built a couple couple billion dollar companies uh he's done it in a really good way and he's very very understated almost like i think of myself as as, is somebody that was um that has really gone against the grain and it was underestimated and has sort of a underdog story, let's put it that way. And so I, I really like Mohan and obviously we've kept in touch and he's, he's, uh, we're working together and it, it, he's great. I, I think he's, he's a quiet, uh, but very powerful influence and in, in how I think about how, in, you know, and think about India, how, how much suffering they've gone through in the pandemic for him to have created that many jobs by doing early stage venture uh, in creating a, a really a, a new industry in India uh, based on product development, not on service development, is just is just great. I think he he's kind of an unsung hero and somebody that I really admire.
0: Yeah, we're we're big fans of under, under underdogs here too, and my uh, family was also first generation immigrants and had that had that very similar story. Uh, Sergio, this has been a lot of fun. I am excited to see the growth of uh, Roble Adventures, the entrepreneurs you back, and hopefully achieving the vision that in, we can sit back in 2031 and talk about not only the great things you've done, the great people you've backed, but also the impact that you've made on on so many people. So I uh, appreciate the time and uh, thanks again for being on.
1: Thank you so much, Tamir This was a lot of fun and I can't wait to to meet with you again, sooner than 2031, but for sure in 2031, for sure.
0: Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed the episode with Sergio. To learn more about him and Roble Adventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. Finally, make sure to sign up at ventureunlock.substack.com, where you'll find updates on the podcast, as well as my posts on the World of Venture Capital.